Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter. And I'll begin in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified And on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, and they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, 
and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while we talked? Will he talk with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come before you this morning and bow our hearts before your majesty in honor and glory. We ask, Almighty Lord, that you would, just as you have done here for the two men on the road to Emmaus, open the scriptures to us, O Lord. May we see things in the word. May we behold the glories of the mystery of the gospel. May we behold the beauty of Christ in all his glory risen indeed today. I pray that our hearts would be transformed, renewed, changed, encouraged, and strengthened with the hope that is found in the resurrection. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would anoint our hearts and minds to hear the words, to believe the words And that, O Lord, that faith would just result in a life that reflects you, Jesus. May the power of the resurrection uh, exist in our lives, living a new life for you, Jesus, by the power of you dwelling in us. We ask, O Lord, that you would overshadow every aspect today, including my mind, my heart, and lips, superintend this service In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the reality is, we were not intended to die. God created man to live. When God created man in the garden, when God created Adam and Eve in in his image, he created Adam and Eve as living beings who were intended, like God, to live forever. Sin entered the human race and through sin came death. Therefore, we all die. Death is inescapable. And yet, human beings for all time have been doing everything in their power to try to escape death one way or the other. Man's quest for immortality is endless, whether it was Ponce de Leon who sought the fabled fountain of youth, or our obsession in Western culture with plastic surgery trying to beat aging and death. People do not want to face the inevitable. We will not live forever in this body as it exists now under the curse of sin. I read recently yesterday that Silicon Valley billionaires are investing hundreds of millions of dollars to in, in, in startup tech companies that are designed for humanity to live forever. Interestingly, though, not through medical science now, but through technology. In fact, one of these organizations, these startups, is called the Methuselah Foundation. 
Very interesting, they go right back to the Bible, to the oldest living man in the Bible. This latest trend of obtaining immortality has to do with the idea that we could somehow upload, we could map the human brain with technology and upload it to a computer and then transfer that mapped uh, uh, brain to an android body and then live forever. It sounds the stuff of science fiction movies, but Jeff Bezos and, and some of the biggest millionaires, Peter Thiel in Silicon Valley, are betting big on it. The big problem is this. They're looking to man once again. We are immortal. Our souls are immortal. And we will live forever. And more importantly, the scripture tells us that the body will be raised from the dead. Jesus told us in John's gospel, chapter 5, verse 20 and 29, that there's a day coming when all the dead will be raised. Some will be raised, those who are unrighteous and wicked will be raised to eternal judgment, and those who are righteous, those who are in Christ, will be raised to eternal life. We will all be raised from the dead, and we will live forever. This death that we experience is the cessation of life in the physical body. The soul goes on forever, but one day we will be reunited with our bodies. The possibility, the potential And the hope that we will live forever with Christ in heaven is not based on something we've done, but it's based on what Jesus Christ has done. Adam, who we are all in, we're all in Adam, we're all descendants, we're all children of Adam, die because Adam died because of sin. But in Christ, and for those who place their trust in Christ, he is now the second Adam, the true Adam, and in him we all live. And we have the hope of the resurrection because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. You see, the problem is not everybody believes in the resurrection. Here we are today. It's Easter Sunday. And I'm telling you, all over the world, there are people celebrating the resurrection of Christ. There are three different groups that are relating to today. There's one group of people who, like us, believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead We have confidence that he is a risen Christ and that we experience Jesus in the present. We refer to him and relate to him in the present. There are others who will join their families. They will go to church and they will celebrate Easter in just the regality of it and the tradition of it, but they do not believe Jesus rose from the dead. They believe it's a myth. They believe it's a fable. And they do not relate to Jesus in the present. They relate to Jesus in the past. When they refer to Jesus, they refer to Jesus as the one who was. When we refer to Jesus, we refer to him as the one who is. There is a big difference on how you relate to Jesus. And then the third category is people who don't care altogether. They do not go to church. They're not Christians. They hate this day, and they're doing everything they can to avoid any sort of Christian uh, uh, um, expression, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever it is. There are many people in the world who just have absolutely nothing to do with Easter Sunday. But for us, the significant difference is the resurrection. It makes all the difference. If Jesus is not risen from the dead then we are the most to be pitied, the Apostle Paul says. But we are not the most to be pitied. We have a living hope in a living Savior who lives 
forever. He indeed is risen from the dead. And so I think it's fundamental that we understand that Jesus rose from the dead to see the historical significance and to uh, look at the background, these stories here. These are very familiar stories that I'm reading today and to see how even the early church struggled with faith in the resurrection. Not even the early church believed. And I want you to see that the means to faith, the means to believing that Christ is risen from the dead is not having a physical appearance of him in the room where you say, okay, now I believe. It is by faith in the Son of God and it is through the Word of God. I want you to see how prominent today the Scriptures play a role in pointing us to who Christ is. Let's begin. That first Easter, as we go into chapter 24, it says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away at the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. These are the women that were described in verse 10. This is Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them. These were the women who, uh, going back to chapter 23, verse 55, tells us, they had come down with him from Galilee and followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They were fulfilling the rituals of a Jewish burial. Now, in those days, we did not, they did not have embalming quite like we do. You were buried in a cave, and it was proper, and it was the ritual, it was the tradition in Israel that when you buried someone, you anointed their bodies with different oils and perfumes because the body as it decomposed would stink. There would be a stench of death in the air. And so it was that that was part of, of, the, of the Jewish tradition to do this. And they were fulfilling this out of love for Jesus. And they get to the tomb and they see the stone rolled away. Now this stone must weigh about three tons and it takes, it takes a, a garrison of Roman soldiers to move it, which were initially appointed to guard the tomb. The garrison is gone and the tombstone is rolled away. Now this immediately would have brought a sense of, of, of astonishment to the women because how would this be done? Well, we know how it was done because it tells us in Matthew 28, 2 through 4, there was a great earthquake and it was the angel of the Lord who rolled away the stone. It was the angel of the Lord. Um, and it says they looked in and they did not find the body of Jesus and this is one of the most important aspects that we have to acknowledge and recognize when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is you may deny the resurrection of Jesus, but you cannot deny the empty tomb. The tomb was empty on that first resurrection Sunday. The body of Jesus was never discovered as being hidden somewhere or moved. The body is not there. The grave is empty, and the grave is still empty to today. There are many other religious leaders in the world and their graves are filled with dead men's bones. But Christ is no longer in the grave. He is risen. There is life in him. He exists. He, he lives. He rules and reigns from heaven. He is the God who was, who is, and is to come. And so with this said, as they uh, recognize the empty tomb, they're puzzled. It says in verse 4, they were perplexed. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These would be the angels, one of them, one of which rolled the stone away. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
It's a good question to ask, isn't it? It's a good question. I mean, after all, they're not... And, and it's, a, it's, it's a funny question because they were not seeking the living. They were seeking the dead. They believed Jesus was dead. They did not go there seeking to uh, find Christ alive. They were seeking to find a dead body. They were, they were there to anoint his body with oil. And, and they're questioning the women. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And it's the women must be wondering, well, I don't know what you're talking about. We're here to see Jesus and he's not here no more. They explain, well, he is not here because he is alive. He rose from the dead. He has risen. He has risen. And so this is the first declaration that Christ was risen was from the angel. He declared that Christ was no longer in the grave but had risen from the dead. And so, therefore, they are appointed to remember. He says to them, remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee. It's easy to forget things when you're an emotional uh, mess. And they, these women were an emotional mess at this time. They were grieving. They were, they were discouraged. They were weary. Um, the, their emotions had clouded them. But Christ, on many occasions, uh, at least three occasions or more, where he specifically speaks about his crucifixion, is being handed over to the Gentiles, and is being risen from the dead, and on many countless occasions... Um, spoke of his resurrection from the dead, uh, wanted to imprint that in his disciples before the cross. He wanted to instill them with that hope. But sometimes, no matter how much we hear things, we forget, don't we? You see, what happens is the present, the things of the present cloud, the realities of God's word that speak to the future. We don't look to the future and trust in God in meeting our needs and in answering our prayers and fulfilling his promises because we are too caught up in the hearing now and looking at the present circumstances, thinking that Christ, the thinking that God is defeated. And so they were told to remember, remember what Christ had said. And it says in verse 8, they remembered his words. They did remember, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest, and it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and so on. And verse 11, they go back to the apostles, they tell them everything that happened, and at this point you have to understand that the remembrance brought faith, and they reported it back to the apostles in verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them, they were dismissed. So again, here you see now the apostles, they had been with Jesus. They heard him teach. They heard him preach. They were with him all the time, and even they didn't believe it. But Peter, on the other hand, ran to the tomb. And we know that John's gospel tells us that John went with him. The two of them ran to the tomb, and they both discovered the empty tomb themselves with the linen cloths by themselves and they went back marveling. They went back marveling. And so it's at this point where they are now considering all of this. There's an empty tomb. What happened to Jesus? Where is he? What did they do with my Lord? Now, the other gospel accounts give us, go right to the chase where Jesus meets them in the upper room and he reveals himself to them. And, and, and they, we know the story of Doubting Thomas and we know the story 
of, of, of Peter and John and, and so on and so forth. But Luke gives us this account, this unique account of two unknown people and how they relate to the resurrection as well. There were countless Christians, countless people. And I think it's important to understand that not everybody is a Peter and a John or, or Thomas. There are countless people in the Christian community who are nameless faces, but who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that Christ cares deeply about them just as much as he does about Peter or John. We may not all be John MacArthur's or we may not all be John Piper's, but Christ cares about each and every one of us individually and he loves us. And there are these two believers that are brought to the surface here. And we're told in verse 13, 35 of these two men who were walking home. And I think it's so important that this interlude is brought into us because it demonstrates to us not only an event of the risen Christ ministering to his people, but showing that there could have been other occasions, not recording in the scripture, where Christ is ministering to, revealing himself to, and uplifting his people. And so we read in verse 13 that that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. If we skip a little down to verse 21, you get a sense of what these men were experiencing. It says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were walking back home, and they were talking about all that had transpired, and we know that they are those who had hoped Jesus would be the coming Messiah. He was going to be the one to redeem Israel. What you're really seeing are two people who've been beaten, who had high hopes, high messianic expectations. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. They're following the Lord. They pursued him. They were around him in Jerusalem. They saw him beaten. They saw him crucified. They seen him uh, killed, murdered, destroyed, and all of their hopes, all of their their expectations were dashed. Their whole belief system collapsed in on itself. They felt like big losers, and they were going home with their tail between their legs. Last week, my daughter Rachel's softball team was playing a, a really hard team. And within the first inning, that team scored 12 runs on Yorktown Huskers. And, and there was a sense with even among the parents, we just felt demoralized. Like we are getting, we are getting beaten bad. And the girls thankfully had a comeback at the end. But there is that sense when you take a loss, when you're beaten, there's a demoralization, a discouragement, a hopelessness, a walking away. We see it every four years when there's a presidential election. The losing side goes into a Great Depression. You see it when there's a Super Bowl. I don't know why, but it seems like people from, from New England and New York get very depressed when their teams don't win. I, I knew a person who, who was a New England's Patriots fan, and when the, her team lost, she would go into a deep... You couldn't even talk to her. These men were broken, it wasn't just a sports team losing. They put all their hope in Christ. They put all their faith in him and he was dead. And they were going home to go back to their lives, back to Roman oppression, 
the Messiah who was potentially going to lead them in victory, destroy the Roman oppression, give them political liberation, all their hopes and dreams and promises that Israel that they had looked forward to were gone. Let's go back to work, back to the drawing board. Let's see who the next Messiah who comes is. It's a wonder how the church could even have survived if there was no resurrection. I want you to think about that. How could have the church survived? Because the heart and spirit of these two men would have been the heart and spirit of the entire community of Christians at this point if there was no resurrection. Let's just go home and move on with our lives. F.F. Bruce, I think, put it best. He said if Jesus had never risen from the dead, we would have never heard of him. He would have been just another political and religious zealot that the Romans and Jews disposed of. He was killed. Another criminal on the cross. Goodbye. Move on. Oh, Simon Barkovka, another revolutionary. He would have just went down the annals of history as another religious zealot. We would have never heard of him. And then you get to the book of Acts and you see the power of the apostles speaking boldly for the name of the Lord. How could it be if there was no resurrection? So these two men are going home. They're speaking of the whirlwind of events, the death of Christ. No doubt, they're talking about the trials. I mean, you know how some the big event happens. It's all you talk about. Then verse 15, 16 tells us a stranger joins them in their walk. He's no stranger. He's someone very close. They just do not realize that it was Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from seeing him. It's important to notice that as Jesus approaches them and is walking with them, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was his appearance was changed or transformed so they didn't recognize him. And it doesn't tell us that they didn't have enough faith to believe that it was Jesus. What the scripture's telling us is that there was an act of God, a sovereign act of God in concealing his identity to these two men. God had temporarily blinded them so they could not see who Jesus was. What is his purpose? And as we'll see, his purpose is to build their faith, to strengthen them, and to point them to something greater than actually visibly seeing him. And so, as he approaches them, he begins to talk with them. He said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. In other words, to even ask this question just just reverberated with them. It, it caused them a sense of consternation, of grief. They just kind of looked at them like... And, and, and then Cleopas answers them, the only man named here. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, where have you been? Like, like this is like the news of the world. This is Passover, we're in Jerusalem Everybody knows what happened. This Jesus who was called the Messiah was killed. Where were you? In verse 19, the Lord prods them. And he said to them, what things? 
And you could see what Christ is doing. He wants to draw them out. He wants them to see their own perception of the events and how they unfolded and how their own weakness, their own lack of faith and how their own failure to trust had distorted the reality of the events. They were being hindered by their lack of faith. They were being hindered by the own darkness of their emotional state. And so we read in verse 19, they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. No doubt, they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophet who was spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18, that would come someone like me, a prophet who will speak to you. You must listen to him. This prophet, this prophecy of Jesus uh, goes back to the time of the law and all throughout this time, the Jews believed this was the Messiah. And they said, indeed, Christ was a prophet. He was, uh, um, they thought he was a prophet. Maybe now he's just a prophet. And he was mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Now, it's important to recognize that whether you believe in Jesus rising from the dead or not, one thing you cannot deny is that Jesus was a real historical person. And he made history through his words and his deeds. Uh, Even uh, Roman historian, Jewish historian Josephus has uh, records of, in his book of the life and the works of Jesus, of the ministry of Jesus, his words and works were unlike anyone before him or after him. When we talk about his mighty works, we talk about his miracles, his feeding of the 5,000, his, his uh, curing those with uh, congenital illnesses, uh, healing the blind, healing the leper. Uh, these were mighty works. Was it Nicodemus not in John chapter 3 who said, Lord, no one could do these things unless he's from God. It's a testimony that Jesus was sent of God. He was a man mighty in words. His, his words were powerful. His, there was no greater preacher that ever existed than Jesus Christ. Whoever you think is your favorite preacher, Jesus far surpasses them. Oh, to have lived and heard him preach, it must have been mesmerizing, powerful. In fact, it tells us in Matthew 7, 28, after the Sermon on the Mount, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus could look at the audience, instead of saying, thus saith the Lord, he looks at his audience and say, verily, verily, I say unto you. He spoke as one with authority. His words were powerful. They were mighty. Thousands of people dropped everything to follow him. Then he goes on to tell the next part. Verse 20, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. They get right to the point. It was the Jews who handed Jesus over to be killed. Yes, both The Jews and the Romans collaborated, but the greater guilt, and even Jesus said to himself in John chapter 19 to Pilate, the greater guilt is of the Jews. The Jewish people, the people of God, the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, they betrayed their own. 
They rejected him. He came to his own and his own received him not. And then they took Jesus and they handed him over to the very, their very enemies, the Romans. They said, kill him, crucify him. We can't do it because we're not allowed to. You kill him. They chose a thief instead and a criminal and a murderer. Oh my. When you think about this, when you think about the guilt, and yet in all of that, it wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. It wasn't the Romans who killed Jesus. It was the Father who killed Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice the sovereign purpose of God doesn't abrogate the human responsibility. The Jews are still culpable. They're still responsible for their crime. And they will give an account to God on judgment day. But it was the definite plan of God for Jesus to be killed. It was we studied on Good Friday, it was the purpose to redeem us from our sins. And then verse 21, but we had hoped, we had hoped, again that hope, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. What are they saying there? They remembered what Jesus said. They remembered that he said on the third day he would rise again. And what they're saying is, look, it's the third day and what? Nothing happened. Here we are. You could see the hopelessness. You could see the negativity. You could see the discouragement oozing out of them. You could see that their hearts are completely lost faith. But then there's, a, there's this glimmer of hope in verse 22. Because what happened in the first verses when we talked about the women going to the grave, it says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did him they did not see. And he said to them, well, let me stop there. So he's acknowledging that the women discovered the empty tomb. He's acknowledging that the disciples discovered the empty tomb. But we did not see him. It's the third day already. Where is he? Other times we're ever like that. Lord, where are you? It's the third day already. I've been waiting so long for you to answer this prayer. I've been trusting in you for this solution to this problem. I've been pleading with you and looking to you. And it's the third day already. Where are you? It almost has an echo there of, of Mary and Martha when, when Christ arrives in Bethany and, and Lazarus is in the grave four days. And, and Martha says, where have you been, Lord? If you had gotten here sooner, my brother would be alive. It's amazing because people in the first century didn't have technology like we do. And technology, I feel, it makes us very impatient. 
right? We have, we have the desire to have things instantaneously. If our Wi-Fi speeds are too slow, we get angry. And yet, even in the first century, we see the impatience of God's people not waiting upon him. But the Lord is tender, and the Lord ministers to them. And notice what we see here, verse 25. Now, they don't know who he is. He's just simply the stranger. He said to them, O foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were foolish and slow of heart. They were foolish in the sense that their folly was bound up in looking at the mere circumstances at the present, at the now. They were slow of heart to understand the scriptures. You see the theme again going back to when, when, when the women met the angels at the grave. Remember what the Lord had said. It's about going back to God's word. What does God say? The tyranny of the urging can strip us of our faith. But when you look to God's word, it builds faith. Instead of looking to God's word, these men were looking to go back to their old home. They were turning their back on Christ. It's the third day. Where is he? He says, was it not necessary that Christ, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. There was Christ right in front of them. They didn't see him. Their eyes were covered by the Lord. All they could see was the crucifixion. All they could remember was Jesus hanging on that cross dying. And what does Jesus do? At this moment, he can say, pull off his hat and say, hey guys, it's me. Cheer up. That would almost seem, you know, and you often wonder, why doesn't Jesus just do that? Why doesn't he go running through the streets of Jerusalem telling the Pharisees, hey guys, it's me. You missed me. Because that's not how God reveals himself to us. It would be below him to do that. He had to show them through the scriptures that he was risen from the dead. I can only imagine, he says he went through all the Old Testament scriptures to show them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, to show them that he was to suffer and then rise from the dead. Later down, you could see further, when he meets with the apostles in the upper room, verse 46, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third and rise from the dead. And, 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 and this was all based on the law and the prophets. Verse 44, These are my words I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When we read the Nicene Creed, we said we believe that Christ in the resurrection of the dead according to the scriptures. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. 
The resurrection was not something new. It was not something magical. It wasn't hocus pocus. It was according to the scriptures. And in order to believe in the resurrection, we must look to the word of God. I can only imagine the scriptures that Jesus used to speak of himself. I mean, he said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures that in them you think you have eternal life, but I tell you it is they that testify of me. All of God's word testifies of Christ. The Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. It looks forward to Christ. It anticipates Christ's death and resurrection. And the New Testament proceeds from Christ. Everything from the New Testament proceeds from him. Moving forward. You probably turn to Genesis 3.15. Oh, the serpents had been crushed. Oh, that was me. Uh, Psalm 110. Uh Uh-oh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Oh, that's me. Psalm 22, my Lord, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that's me. Uh, Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to bear the iniquity of his people. Oh, that was me. And on and on and on, Jesus would go and show them that it is the scripture, it is the word of God that points you to Christ. It teaches his death. It teaches his resurrection. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. It was necessary for him to be crushed. It was necessary for him to be crucified for our sins. He came to satisfy the debt that we all owe God, that we could not pay. That debt was an eternity in hell to be punished for our sins. And Jesus took all of it and he died and he absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And he said, it is finished, telestomai. And he said, it's over. You're completely forgiven given it's done and when he rose from the dead it was to declare victory that it was a success the sacrifice had been accepted and now in Christ we have eternal life Jesus wanted them to see that if they would only believe what the scriptures say about him they would understand why he came to suffer And they would have known who he was. That they would not have lost hope. Everybody's looking for something magical. You know, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Look for a sign, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation. You know, I often see they have these mediums on TV. And we have a medium right now on the corner of Hartsdale Avenue. Big business. She's doing good business, right? People want to contact the dead. Oh, man, if I could only talk to someone from the other side, then I'll have it all figured out. You know what Jesus told us in Luke 16? He gave us a parable about Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man died, and the rich man said, oh, if I could only go back and tell my brothers about this horrible place called hell, they'll believe and they'll turn from their sin. And what, what does Abraham say to him in the parable? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The reason why the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders didn't believe in Jesus was not because he didn't go running through the streets and say, here I am. It's because they didn't believe the word of God. They didn't understand the word of God. They didn't have the right interpretation of the word of God because if they knew the word of God and they knew the scripture, then they would have believed that Jesus is the Christ. He said, if you're Abraham's children, then you would have done what Abraham did. You would worship me. The Bible is sufficient for all things in telling us who Jesus is and what he's done. We do not need to look to any other source but the Bible alone. You ask for anything more, 
then you're going beyond what is written. Finally, it says in verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further. So they urged him strongly, saying, come on, stay with us. It's evening and the day's far spent. And so he went in and stayed with them. And he was at the table with them and he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. The place where Christ reveals himself the most is when we are in intimate fellowship with him. It's symbolic there. It wasn't on the road. It wasn't in the talking. It wasn't in the the movement of life. It was when they sat down and quieted their souls. When they reclined at the table and they saw him break the bread and give thanks, immediately clicked in their head. God opened their eyes. It's him. Christ revealed himself to us. In the midst of our own turmoil, in the midst of our own hopelessness, the best thing we could do is slow down and sit at the table with our Lord and have sweet fellowship and communion with him. And it's in those moments, the sweet, still, sweet, small voice of God will speak to us and open our eyes and Christ will reveal himself and make himself known to us. We need to slow down and sit and fellowship, just fellowship with Christ. And at this point in verse 32, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us when he talked to us on the road? It's almost as if they knew all the time it was him. And it was only by the supernatural grace of God concealing his identity. They went back to Jerusalem and they told the disciples all that happened. I have a few comments to make in closing. Going back to what I said earlier, these men had high hopes. Not just them, but all of the early Christians Everything was pointing to Jesus being the Messiah, the miracles, the sermons, the transformation of lives, the healings. Everything seemed to be adding up that Christ was the expected Messiah. He was the prophet of God. People were hanging their hopes. They were leaving their jobs. They were leaving their homes. They were giving up everything for Christ. And in a moment on that Good Friday at the crucifixion, everything seemed gone Their hopes and their dreams were extinguished. The whole world that they had lived for had collapsed. Jesus is dead. He is gone. They're discouraged. They feel doomed. Nothing seemed to add up anymore. It all ended in utter failure, and it was back to the drawing board. Remember, if if you think about this from what I said before, if it were not for the resurrection, it would be impossible for the church to have moved forward. It would have been impossible for them to preach. But a few weeks later, listen to how Peter preaches in Pentecost. Listen to this in Acts chapter 2, 29 through 32. Listen to the apostle Peter. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are eyewitnesses. 
They preached with boldness and they were willing to lose their lives for the truth of the resurrection. It radically changed everything. It was not merely Jesus who was, it is Jesus who is now. And he is Lord. And the transformation that occurred among the apostles occurs among us today. Your life will never change, will never improve, will never get better. You'll never see the power of God in your life until you truly believe that Christ is risen and that he rules from heaven and that he is the Lord and Savior of all and the Lord of the universe. Until you see the resurrection implies authority. Christ has authority. And until you get that, you will always be in the Jesus was camp. You need to get into the Jesus is camp. And that will give you the boldness and confidence and the empowerment to live through the life that God has called you to live. Finally, in closing, one more point. And that is that in this event, these two men were believers. They were Christians. They had come to faith in Christ. They were followers of Jesus. They lived for Jesus. But their faith was weakened. It was diminished. And in that moment, the Lord was with them, but he concealed his identity. They were blind to who Jesus was, even though he was right there with them. There are many times when the Lord is with us and we don't sense his presence either whether it's sin, whether it's the the gloom of hopelessness or whatever we're experiencing at that moment. But at the right time, Christ will reveal himself to us and give us that hope and encouragement. But I want you to see the greater blindness because there is a greater category of people today that do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe that he is. They do not believe that he's risen. They believe simply that he was a good man. He was a historical person. Yes, he maybe did some miracles, but they do not believe that he's the son of God. And their lives are hopeless today. Their lives are, are in darkness. Their lives are moral abysses of, of wickedness. And it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People can't see the Christ who is because they're blinded. And the only one who could give sight to the blind is Jesus Christ. And today you might be sitting here saying, Bob, I hear everything you're saying, but I can't see it. I could only urge you to look to God and say, God, open my eyes that I may see. And God, just as the blind beggar on the road had begged Jesus to heal him and open his eyes, Christ will open your eyes today. He will remove the scales. He will remove the flesh from your eyes and you will behold Christ in all his glory. And your life will never be the same. It will be transformed forever. Oh, you'll have some ups and downs. But the power of the gospel of the risen Christ and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, when you behold that, just like Moses, when he saw God on the mountain, it says he turned away and he had to cover his face. He was transformed. He was different. No one could even look at him no more. Here is something radical and new Christ does in us. It's called the new birth. And that's the true resurrection.
We are dead, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, one, dead in trespasses and sins. We are so dead, you cannot do anything to save yourself. You are buried, you are lifeless, you're flatlined. Christ speaks forth, rise. And we come out of our spiritual graves, our eyes open, our ears are unclogged, the heart starts to beat for God. And we say, oh Lord, hallelujah, I'm alive. That's the resurrection and the power of Christ that we experience when we behold him in all his glory. I could only tell you today that as we go forth to celebrate this day, there's going to be people that you will be with today who do not know Christ, family members who do not know Jesus. We're going to pray for them today, and may you have an opportunity to share with them the good news that the tomb is not only empty, but he is alive. He's not among the dead. He's not the Christ who was He is the Christ who is and reigns today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that our hearts and minds would be encouraged. Speak to us, O Lord. I pray that these words that we heard would not just roll off our back, but that they would empower us and they would equip us. pray that we'd share the gospel with others today. I pray that we would use this day and every day forward to tell people that you are risen. You're not a defeated Savior. You're a victorious Savior. You conquered death. You conquered sin. Because of you, we have hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.